Wiley Cash, your new novel is When Ghosts Come Home. It's your fourth. It's a little different. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. But I just realized as I was turning on the record button, we've known each other for 10 years now. We have. And I didn't want to tell you this in the virtual green room because I knew you would, uh, you know, get you're so, so self-conscious, Miwa. That's what I think of when I think of you, but I'm teasing. Um, (laughs) You have always given me such incredible support from literally the moment I met you and uh, way back in 2011. And it just means so much to me that you've, you've stayed in my corner for the past decade. So thank you so much. Well, you write good books, so you made it easy. I mean, well, I appreciate that. But you you brought me along in ways you didn't have to. You're also a very good literary citizen. Well, I try. But A Land More Kind Than Home was a bestseller almost out of the gate, if I remember correctly. It's been, I mean, it's been 10 years. And a lot of folks said, hey, wait a minute, who is this kid from North Carolina? Born in Gastonia, right? Well, I was born in Fayetteville, kind of on oh, the eastern okay. part of the state. But I was only there for a couple of months. Mm-hmm. But I was raised really from infancy to young adulthood in Gastonia. And Gastonia shows up in a lot of your books. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's terrible. I call your second novel, the baseball novel. Remind me what the title is. Sorry. Uh, this Dark Road to Mercy. I call right. it the baseball novel too. When I call okay. it anything, I call it the baseball novel. Well, I mean, Wade's history is pretty important, but the baseball novel was the second book. And then mm-hmm. you switched to historical fiction for The Last Ballad, which was just a couple of years ago. And Last Ballad was based on the true story. It's set in 1929 in Gastonia. It's the true story of a union organizer and a young woman who gets involved in that. And now we're back in the 1980s. We're on the east coast of North Carolina, and we're following a local sheriff. And we meet his wife, and we meet his daughter, and we see his community. Would you set up the new book for listeners and also let us know how we got here? Sure. Yeah. So the setup for the new novel, the new novel's title is When Ghosts Come Home. And the novel opens. It is the fall of 1984, just a couple of days before the sheriff is facing a tough reelection vote. And he is awakened in the middle of the night when a large aircraft flies low over his house. And so against his wife's wishes, he goes out to this local municipal airport. It's a grass field. And he goes and sets out to see if he heard what he thinks he heard. And when he gets out to the airport, he finds an abandoned DC-3. It's a World War II era propeller plane. It's an enormous airplane. It's much too large for this municipal, you know, kind of county runway. And a plane has crash landed. It's abandoned. There's no one around. And beside the plane, he finds the body of a local man shot dead and left behind. And so this mystery springs up. Who flew this aircraft? Why is it here? Why was it abandoned? And had no business on a, on a runway this small. And was this local guy involved? And this local guy is a young man. He's in his mid-20s. He's the son of a Black civil rights leader who's also a local history teacher at the high school. And so, of course, it's the mid-1980s. We're in the war on drugs. We're instituting DARE programs across the country. And the sheriff's challenger begins to send these kind of whispers and innuendo through the community that, hey, the local Black community is flying in drugs and they're infiltrating our quiet, peaceful county with the smuggling and your local sheriff's doing nothing about it. And, of course, the sheriff, as you said, Winston Barnes, his challenger is this young money daddy's boy, this developer, and he's playing on all of these white supremacist tropes. And of course, violence ensues and terror ensues. And the sheriff finds himself really trying to track a course through all of these landmines in order to keep his community and his family together as much as possible. And the other thing we should mention too, is the kid who is running against Winston for sheriff is also a developer. Mm-hmm. 
he's got a housing development that he's trying to make something out of. And he's not particularly good at what he does. He's not particularly good at what he does. And it's amazing when you get into the to places like Eastern North Carolina. We live down in Wilmington. I moved to Wilmington in the fall of 2013, about the time that I hit upon the idea of this book or kind of had the idea of this book delivered to me. And when you get down to somewhere like Wilmington, North Carolina, where we've got a lot of, lot of salty, marshy land, it's amazing the pair some of these folks have to go out here in these wetlands and, and throw up developments. And it's amazing how often and how easily, and we see that with global warming, that nature is always going to have the final hand. We are destroying the planet, but eventually the planet's going to say, nah, no more, and then we're gone. The planet lives on. We are not going to. And we see that in some housing developments down here on the eastern part of, of North Carolina. And this developer is somebody who's never really worked hard for what he's got. He was given money. He was given opportunity. He was given these development toys and pickup trucks and work crews. And he's just kind of coasting along, just burning money. And he's the kind of guy that believes that with wealth comes access to power that he deserves. And so it's no wonder that he wants to be sheriff. You know, it's no wonder that that money, soft-handed daddy's boys often run, run for public office. And sometimes they're the sons of developers, as in my novel and as in other examples we've seen. Why the 1980s? Is it because of the D.A.R.E. connection or because it felt like you were pinging on some sort of melancholy transition period in America where there were some folks who felt like they'd been left behind, others who've been demonstrably left behind? Sure. You know, I think that the 1980s, especially the mid-1980s and that election in 1984 was a real watershed moment. And, you know, we have Bruce Springsteen singing the irony of a song called Born in the USA, which is about being left behind, which is about being from a Rust Belt forgotten community. And then we have a politician like Ronald Reagan telling us, morning has come to America. And we're like, no, it hasn't. It has not. Right. And so that felt like a particularly tenuous time. And, and meanwhile, you mentioned the D.A.R.E. program, Say No to Drugs. We also have these drug planes being flown in from outside the country and crash landed in Mississippi and Florida and the Georgia and the Carolinas. And so this is a phenomenon that was happening. And it's also the political moment when we start putting names to what we are trying to convince people to fear. We have the myth of the welfare queen. Just a couple of years later, I guess it's 1988, I believe, we have Willie Horton. So we have all of these ties to these racial attitudes, cultural posturing, and and all that came to bear in the mid-1980s, where we do have, you know, disco is beginning to wane, and we have the rise of kind of angsty musicians like R.E.M. and Joan Jett. And it was a real watershed moment, and it was an unstable moment. But at the same time, we have Ronald Reagan carrying 49 states. We have Ronald Reagan winning 60% of the popular vote. So as unstable as we were culturally, we had this kind of political blanket thrown over the nation that convinced us that that's what we were, despite the AIDS crisis, despite all of these other things. It was a watershed moment where we were struggling with deciding who we were and who we wanted to be as a nation. Have we made any progress? You know, I don't know. You know, people say, well, gosh, history repeats itself. And and I don't know that history repeats itself so much as it just continues on. I mean, we look at something like January 6th and where I live here in Wilmington, North Carolina, my friend David Sacchino 
wrote a Pulitzer Prize winning book about the race riot of 1898 right here in Wilmington, which is the only successful overthrowing of a government in American history. And then we tried again uh, more than 100 years later. So I don't know that we've made any progress, but I do know that I believe that it is easier to change institutions than it is to, to change people's minds. And we see that right now with vaccine mandates across employers because the employees won't do it. So we'll change the institution and the, the people will fall in line. And so oftentimes I think it's easier to change public policy around something like drug enforcement than it is to change individual attitudes and preconceived notions about who uses drugs, who sells drugs, what those penalties surrounding drugs should be. It's easier and more effective to change the policy. Readers will see it in my book. These individual attitudes of these actors and these characters are never going to be changed. And we see that with fake news and Facebook posts. When you go to somebody and you say, look, what you just posted is a lie. And I can prove that it's not true. And they say, so what? Oh, well, you're never going to change them. But you can change the institutions that frame their behavior. Winston really is a product of his time. He is a Korean war vet. He loves his wife. He loves his kid. He just wants to do the right thing. And he does have a very good idea of what's right and what's wrong. And he is stuck in a position where folks around him don't necessarily actually want to change, even though this young guy is, is challenging him for sheriff. The young guy is really looking forward to taking everyone back three or four steps. And not that Winston is a huge change agent. He's who he is. And He's one of the good guys, but he's a bit of a plotter. He's just a very steady, stable guy. Yeah. He wants to do the right thing. He lives with a couple of decisions that he's made over time, and they weigh very heavily on him. There's some family stuff going on as well, and, and we're going to stay a little spoiler-free in this conversation. He's a very relatable guy in a lot of ways. But guys like Winston are seemingly fewer and further between at this point, he kind of just wants to be left alone to live his life and do right by his community. Yeah, he does. You know, he really wants to do the right thing and he wants to kind of find that middle course. And, you know, would he call himself a progressive? Probably not. But would he call himself, you know, a Southern good old boy? Probably not. But at the same time, as a lot of us who think that the quick action is the effective action Winston sees that he's wrong. And, and there's one instance that comes to mind in particular, and that instance is when the civil rights leader that I mentioned, his name is Ed Bellamy, he's the high school teacher whose son is found dead on the runway. He comes to Winston's office and says, look, there was a night ride in our community last night. There were people driving through in cars and pickup trucks, flying the Confederate flag, shooting off guns. They were shining spotlights in our homes. And I called. I called the police. I called the sheriff's department and it took one of your deputies an hour to get out there and he refused to do anything. He told me the night was quiet and he asked me if I had a weapon and he made me put my rifle down because I was out there trying to protect my, my house and my, my family. And so the sheriff fires that deputy and he looks at Ed Bellamy and says, you know, he calls him up and fires the deputy and he's like, well, that's over. And Ed Bellamy is, he's shocked that Winston would think just because you fired a representation of that ideology who thinks that night rides are something that I should just get over and just get used to and that you should just look the other way from just because you fired that guy doesn't mean it's over. That just means that guy's not going to do that as a sheriff's deputy. Now he's still going to do it. He's still going to think it, 
right? So you firing him and doing that quick, easy action is not going to change the institution of prejudice and oppression and racial terror that I have to deal with. It's not even making a drop in the bucket. And so, as you said, me while Winston is a good guy, but Winston confuses expedience with effectiveness. And, and I think that oftentimes we do that. You know, we vote every four years on a federal level and we're like, well, done my duty when the things that are going on in our neighborhoods would shock us if we just looked at them for a moment and we understood the depth of some of the challenges that are, that are facing our communities, you know, wherever we are. And I think Winston is, he's a, he's a, good, a good person, but he's a, he's a deeply flawed person in that respect. But he's also very reminiscent of who we knew our fathers and grandfathers and many of us to be in the mid-1980s. And maybe he's even reminiscent of who I am now sometimes that I don't want to be or who other readers are or who others of us are that we don't want to be. You know, when we feel called upon to make those tough decisions, we think, oh my God, can I just fire this person or do I have to address the whole company? Did When Ghosts Come Home start with Winston or did you start with the idea that I want to tell this story set in a specific place? Or did Winston just suddenly show up and you realized, oh, I need to write a book about this guy? Well, you know, it came because right when we moved back to North Carolina, we were living in West Virginia up near Pittsburgh. And this was way before Last Ballad came out. This was in 2013. We'd come back and we'd moved down to the coast here. My wife, Mallory, is from Wilmington. And uh, my parents had moved down to the coast several years before they had left the western part of the state. And I realized that I was in this place that I didn't really understand. The geography, the landscape, the culture didn't resonate with me. I didn't grow up around the ocean. I don't know how to drive a boat. We don't have legacy landed southern money. You know, all of this felt very foreign to me. And one day I was at an event at a university here in North Carolina. And, and, and somebody asked me where I lived. And I said, well, I live in Wilmington. And this guy said, well, I spent a summer on Oak Island in the 1970s. And I'll never forget this enormous aircraft crash landed and they had to hire a stunt pilot to fly it off the runway because the runway was too short. And I just thought, my God, how, what a fascinating story that a specialist would have to come in and fly a too large aircraft off a too short runway. And my, my imagination just ran wild. And I never looked into that story. I don't know if it was true or if he made it up or somebody lied to him. I never looked into that story, but I just thought, you know, my God, what if I set this in the 80s when we were so aware of outsiders? We were so aware of people who didn't look like us trying to sneak into our communities. And of course, we're still we're still hyper attuned to that kind of thing as a nation and, and you know, as a people, as much as we don't want to be, we still are. And I thought, well, if that's kind of the setup, who's going to be involved in that kind of story? And of course, the local sheriff's going to be involved in a story like that. And so I began kicking around, you know, who's the sheriff? What's his role in this? And what are his sympathies? What are his hangups? What are his regrets? What are his uncertainties? And, you know, I want to write novels that have really strong characters in them. And, and I find that what I do over and over is I, I decide who the character is, and then I look at all the pressure points that are bearing down on them from exterior forces. And then I try to assess all the interior emotional pressure points that are bearing down on them that nobody knows about. And the more time I spent with Winston, the more I realized, like, oh my gosh, you know, this guy's up for a re-election battle. He's got this progressive heart in a very conservative part of the state. He has these long buried wounds that have haunted him and he's trying to do the best he can. And his daughters found herself in a tough situation. His wife's struggling. He's just got all this stuff coming to bear on him. And then this murder investigation 
is delivered just a few days before a re-election that he is certain he's going to lose. And everybody knows he's going to lose it. His employees know he's going to lose it. And he has to decide what he's going to do. This is a really different book, too, from The Last Ballad. Yeah, it is. You know, The Last Ballad. Last Ballad almost put me in the ground. I'll be honest with you. And I know, you know, my editor, David, and, you know, there were times when he was like, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know if this is what you want it to be. And, and my wife, Mallory, would read stuff and she's like, I don't know how this is going to come together because it was a historical novel based on a real event. And a lot of the characters that I was writing about were real people. And I was I was trying to create these characters and then plug them into this narrative timeline. And at the end, I just had these characters that I loved and I cared so much about. And it took me a long time to find out what the cohesive story was. Right. Because the Lori Mill strike in 1929 was a real event, but events do not make for very good stories, right? It just doesn't make for a very good story. And so I had to find out what the story was for each character and then find a larger cohesive narrative to thread through that would bring the events of the strike with it. And that kind of happened with When Ghosts Come Home too. I had this, this original starter this inciting incident, a mysterious airplane. And that's what we called the novel. And my family, for a long time, we called it the mysterious airplane. This mysterious airplane lands, and that's really all I knew. And I created all these characters. The sheriff, Winston Barnes, his 25-year-old daughter, Colleen, this young Black teenager uh, named Jay from, from Atlanta who comes in. I created all these characters and I just loved them so much. And I thought they were so rich and so interesting. And I love spending time with them and trying to find out about them. And then eventually I found myself asking, what happens at the end? How does all this come together? And, and it took a while for me to find the thread of the narrative, which was surprising because this ended up being my most plot heavy book. And I was able to find a plot there at the end that I just kind of realized I was so fortunate. You know, this is my first mystery that I've ever written, where at the end, hopefully the reader's going to say, oh my God, I didn't see that coming. And there are a couple of big reveals and big shocks at the end. And I certainly did not see them coming when I was writing this book, and certainly not when I first got the idea to write. I don't want to spoil anything. And I told you earlier what my response to the ending was. What I will say is it's very organic and it's very true to the story. Yeah. And you know, I knew early on what I wanted the ending to feel like. I mm -hmm. knew the emotional beat that I wanted the novel to end on. And I didn't know what the plot apparatus, the plot scaffolding was going to be to get me the emotional note of that close. And I never lost sight of the abstract weather of how I wanted the book to feel, whether like weather outside the window. And I didn't always arrived there organically. And there were a couple of endings and a couple of like three quarter finishes, you know, three quarters of the way through the book that my wife or David read. And they said, man, this isn't it. This isn't it. And then once I found the one that was it, it was challenging and, and difficult to marry it to um, the reality of some of the characters' lives, but it was the only one that would work. But you're writing novels while you're teaching. And one of the things I wanted to ask you about is what a curriculum looks like for Southern Lit 101. This is something you've been teaching for a really long time. And all four of your novels are steep in the South. And you could even call a land more kind than home a Southern Gothic. You could absolutely mm -hmm. call it a Gothic. Sure. So what does that curriculum look like? Who are your students? 
what are you learning from your students? I mean, let's have this conversation. You know, I learn a lot from my students. I'm the alumni author in residence at the University of North Carolina, Asheville, which I am actually a graduate of. I did my undergraduate there and it changed my life. It's a public liberal arts university and there's not a lot of those. And it provides an incredible service to students. It steeps them in the liberal arts tradition. My literature students or my creative writing students, they come in the door of the classroom aware that they are citizens of the world. And they have a responsibility to honor the world through whatever text that we're reading or whatever they're writing, if they're writing prose or whatever the case may be. And so they're pulling from such a wealth of humanities, history, sociology, psychology, all of these different studies because the educational model at at the university is so broad and they have, you know, their literary study, but there's so much coming to bear on it. And so, you know, for example, several years ago, I taught uh, a Southern lit class, but I taught it in terms of Black Southern writers who had gone North to publish. And the first couple of days, the students were a little confused about, you know, why are we not reading Mark Twain or William Faulkner or Eudora Welty or Flannery O'Connor? And why are we reading novels, many of which are set in Washington, D.C. or New York City? And I said, we need to understand that the South is not necessarily just regional. The South is also foodways. The South is also a sense of faith. The South is also cultural traditions. The South is also language. And when you have a phenomenon like the Great Migration, the South expands to San Francisco. If you're a writer like Ernest Gaines, who began writing when he lived out in San Francisco area, writing about Southwest Louisiana. Or if you're Gene Toomer from Louisiana, you're writing in Washington, D.C. after spending time down in in Macon, Georgia. Or if you're Nella Larson, or if you're Richard Wright, you flee Mississippi and you go up to Chicago and you you can't stop writing about the South because the South is haunting you. Or if you're Zora Neale Hurston and you leave Florida to go up to New York City and fall under the patronage of these wealthy whites, people who are expecting some measure of performance, right, in the Harlem Renaissance. And so these were writers that were South haunted. And so we studied these Black writers who were writing in relief of the South. You know, they were writing about the South because they could finally tell the truth for the first time. And also getting away from the heat of the experience. You know, if you look at a text like Richard Wright's Black Boy, where he's reflecting on a childhood in Mississippi, that experience is so hot, is so immediate, that when he gets to Chicago or gets north, he can look back on that experience with a measure of clarity that living in the midst of the experience doesn't quite allow. And so when I think about the Southern canon, I think about all of those writers, but then, of course, I think about contemporary writers. And one thing that I find incredibly exciting about Southern literature right now is how the rural South is being represented so well and so fully. Um, You know, I'm thinking about a writer like Monique Truong, who's writing about Shelby, North Carolina, where my dad is from. I'm thinking about a writer like S.A. Cosby in Blacktop Wasteland and Razorblade Tears. He's an incredible writer. But the breadth of his reading mm-hmm. is staggering. He mm-hmm. knows every tradition that he's pulling from to a T. And another writer, David Joy, up in Western North Carolina, is writing these contemporary noir, kind of hillbilly noir, that are all about environmental degradation. They're all about 
the methadone scourge. They're all about opiates killing people in mass in, in these Appalachian communities. And he's doing it with grace and generosity. And then you have a writer like Jason Mott, who lives not too far from me here in, in, uh, in Wilmington, writing a book like Hell of a Book that's talking about police violence and these haunting identities that you're forging as, as a Black child growing up in the South that always stay with you. And so I think that rural writing, and then of course we have a writer like Silas House in Kentucky, or I'm just naming all, all my friends now, but just taking on issues of gay life in, in a place like Kentucky. Or Carter Sickles, his novel, The Prettiest Star, that came out set in Southern Ohio about the AIDS crisis and, and kind of coming home to die with grace and, and kindness and hope in rural Ohio in the 1980s. And so I think that, that rural Southern lit is really having a moment where writers of rural lit feel seen, they feel in command of the space, and they don't feel marginalized by the spaces they're from. And I think it's wonderful to see. Yeah, we love Sean. We love Blacktop Wasteland. We love yeah, it's a He's He's the real deal. He, he blurred when ghosts come home and I was thrilled. And my British editor was really thrilled. He's a writer, though, who knows what he's working with, but he can also quote Flannery O'Connor as fast mm -hmm. as he can talk about Elmore Leonard. And I really respect that, that he is just a writer's writer, but he loves story. Yeah, he's a writer's writer, and he's also somebody, and my buddy Jason Moth, his, his wonderful book, Hell of a Book. Sean and Jason are two guys that I just love talking about books with. And I love talking about craft with. When you talk to them about craft, it's like you're talking with them about hammers and nails and two by fours, and we're going to build a shed. But instead of a shed, it's going to be a book. And it's just this kind of blue collar, honest approach to the act of writing that I think is too often missing from the academy that Jason and I are both teaching. Sean is not, but we got to talk about the, the realities of writing. We got to talk about the business of writing. We got to talk about the nuts and bolts of how this works on the page, not just what it means, but how this novel stands or falls based on the, the craft elements we're bringing to it. How do your students respond when you're talking to them about the reality of writing? I mean, it's always great to hear a new writer hit the scene, but I think a lot of folks don't quite understand that there's a business piece to this. Yeah, you know, I tell them as much as I can, and, and I tell them a couple of things. I tell them this story. When I was a kid growing up in North Carolina in Gastonia, after church on Sunday, we did two things. We'd go to the Cracker Barrel, and then we would drive around and look at houses we couldn't afford. And inevitably, we would find a house that was under construction, and my dad would get out of the car and find a way to get into the house. And we would walk through the house, and my dad would touch everything. He would physically interact with a staircase and look at how it was fastened to the wall. He would look at a door and see what the header was. He would look at the joist and see how they were put in because he was a handyman and we did plenty of stuff around the house and I still do. We live in a house from the 1940s, so we got plenty to do. But he physically interacted with the space. Now, was my dad interested in architecture? Was he interested in what many architects who build houses call the housiness of the house. No, my dad didn't give a shit about that. Sorry for my language. He didn't care about that. He cared about how the structure stood. And I tell students in this class, we're going to talk about how to build structures. We're not going to talk about what they mean or how they make us feel. We're going to walk through this structure 
And we're going to talk about dialogue and scene and narrative and narration the same way that my dad would talk about how the ceiling is working or how the floor joists are set. And we're going to talk about craft. And when we think about craft, we're going to think about it the same way we're going to think about craft if we were taking a pottery class or if we were taking a gardening class. If, if I tell you that your pot is too thin and it's going to break in the kiln, none of you would say, I'm never making another pot. And if I told you your bulbs buried too deep, none of you are ever going to say, I'm never planting again. So I got to be able to talk about your writing the same way we talk about driving nails and hanging doors and throwing pots and burying bulbs, right? And I think on that level, the students are really receptive because it tells them my feelings aren't going to be hurt in this class because we're not even going to get to that. We're just going to talk about this on a craft level, on a door frame, on a windowsill, on a staircase level. And we're not going to get in to an area where we're going to allow ourselves in many ways to feel super, super vulnerable. And in terms of the business, I tell them outright, you know, my students now, you know, I'm you at UNC Asheville, the majority of them are better writers. My writing students are better writers than I was when I was 21, 22 years old. And I mo- primarily work with juniors and seniors. Most of them are better read and they're already naturally better writers than I was. But I tell them that, you know, many of you aren't going to publish because you're going to decide not to work very hard. So you have to make that decision. How much are you going to put yourself out there? How often are you going to go to the post office to mail stories to whatever magazine and include a self-addressed stamped envelope? Like how many rejections are you going to get before you give up? How many parties are you going to skip? How early are you going to wake up in the morning to crank out the words before you have to go wait tables at a job you hate? And when I think about that, I think about my friend Lily King, her new book, well, not new book, came out two years ago, Writers and Lovers. And all of the things that that main character, that narrator goes through to get that book to work. And a lot of people don't realize that restaurants and and wait staff and construction sites and and all kinds of places are full of people who are going home at night and getting up early in the morning and sitting down at the desk and, and writing. And some of your students are even booksellers. One former student and one current student, my former student's name is Damia Holland. They're an exceptional writer, took several creative writing classes with me. And then my other student is Carol Barber. They are both booksellers at the Barnes & Noble on Tunnel Road at the Asheville Mall in Asheville, North Carolina, and they're great students. And uh, it's a pleasure working with them. It's also something I say a lot because I've been a bookseller for a really long time, and I've had the privilege of talking to people who want to be writers. And one of the things I will always, always say is... You don't necessarily need an MFA, but go be a bookseller for a while. If you want a real education in books. Yeah. You know, and I tell them that very thing, go be around books, go to the bookstore and look at the bookstore's event calendar and who's coming to the store to sign books or to give a talk. And maybe you spend five minutes with them after the signing and they say, Hey, if you ever have a book, here's my email address. And then you've got your first blurb. You just never know what's going to happen in a bookstore. Or if you're going to find a writing community, or if you're going to find a peer group, you just never know. Let's talk about what you're teaching now, too, because you are teaching a class on horror. Mm -hmm. Horror is really having a moment. And again, we've got booksellers who love the genre, and they know more about it than I could ever Mm -hmm. possibly learn. But you're teaching a class that's new to you. You're covering for a colleague. I am. And it's not just horror, it's ethnic horror which I know your listeners are like, gosh, when I think of that middle-class white guy from North Carolina, no wonder I automatically think of ethnic horror. But I am filling in for a beloved colleague who left the university. She is so wonderful and so brilliant. 
And my department chair said, this class was full and these students are super excited about it when you take it on. And to be honest, part of my PhD study was in African-American literature. My primary scholarly publications before I started writing books were in African-American literature with Ernest Gaines and Langston Hughes and many other writers. And so I do feel comfortable wading into some of this territory. But at the same time, I feel less comfortable with horror as a genre because it is such a beloved genre. It has so many expectations and conventions that are not automatically assumed, whether you're writing literary fiction or detective fiction or mystery fiction. It's such a specific thing. But one thing that I keep going back to is a sociological study of horror by a literary critic, and and her name's escaping my head. My former colleague shared this book with me. And this critic writes about how so much of cultural haunting is built around the world being broken, things being out of place, people being where they shouldn't be, and that leaves spirits disturbed. And that so much of the key to settling horror is that something must be done right? Something must be addressed. And every time we're reading a text this semester, we talk about that. What has been disturbed in the biosphere of this text? What do we feel trying to be done to address that thing that has been undone, right? What what has to be set right? And one of the great things about this semester is that I've reached out to all of the writers that I'm teaching and they're they all have agreed to, to zoom in with my students. And so it's all contemporary writers. And I hope that I'm impressing my students. They don't seem very impressed by anything that I've said or done or any friendships or relationships that I have. But I hope they're enjoying getting to spend some time with these writers. And, and the first text that we read and discussed was a memoir by Nadia Owusu, uh, her book Aftershocks that came out um, early last year. And, you know, it's a memoir. It's not ethnic horror fiction. But it's about Nadia, who's a friend of mine, so I don't mind saying her first name. It's about Nadia's literally being haunted by her geographical past, her ethnic past, her racial identity, by her gender, her sexual identity. It's all of these hauntings. And throughout that book, we watch Nadia try in many different ways to set something right, to do the thing that must be done to tilt the world back that has been tilted for whatever reason. We just finished Stephen Graham Jones, The Only Good Indians. We're doing Jason Mott's new novel, Hell of a Book. We're doing Ruman Alam's Leave the World Behind, a Ling Ma Severance, a new novel by James Han Matson called Reprieve, Gabino Iglesias' short story collection, Coyote Love Songs, Jung Yoon's novel Shelter. It's a thrilling course. My students are brilliant. They're eager every day to discuss this stuff, and I'm having a blast. That's so awesome. Do you feel pressure to write about the South in a certain way? No, not really. I don't really feel pressure to write about anything in a certain way. And to be honest, when I'm writing, it's such a long, kind of lonely, insular process that it never even dawns on me that somebody is going to read. Even, you know, I'm working right now on a book that's under contract, and Like, I got to do it, right? I got to do this book, but I'm still not thinking that it's ever going to be a book. It just seems ridiculous that that this is ever going to, what I'm writing, I handwrite, I've been handwriting the past couple of books and it just seems ridiculous that it's ever going to be in a book. And so I never feel that pressure. Now, are there moments when I'm like, we're coming toward publication and I'm like, oh my gosh, my fourth grade teacher is going to read what I said and how is she going to feel about that? And this is also the privilege of being, you know, I joked about being a middle-class white guy. 
The identity of the middle class white guy is pretty forged in the American conscience. Nothing I'm going to do is going to trouble it. Nobody's putting pressure on me to be like, you know, go out there and make those white guys look good. I don't have that pressure on me. And many other people do. And we put that pressure on writers like Sean Cosby to represent the reality of black life in, in southeastern Virginia. Nobody's putting that pressure on me. And that's very fortunate for me that I, that I don't feel those pressures. What do you want readers to know about the new book, When Ghosts Come Home? You know, I want the readers to think about a couple of things. You know, the book is set in the 1980s. And where I was from in North Carolina, if you were a white person, you were probably a Republican. If you were a Republican, you were Christian. If you were Christian, you were Southern Baptist. If you were Southern Baptist, you were evangelical. And all of that meant that you loved Ronald Reagan. You loved Jesse Helms. And that was just kind of like something that was just believed. It was an implicit understanding in my community that that's how you felt. And so we never really had explicit conversations because it was just an implicit built-in mechanism for viewing and seeing and interacting with the world, right? And we never had tough conversations because there were no tough conversations to have because everyone, it was implied, agreed with you. Now, here we are, 2021 our political cultural leanings are much more explicit, even in a place like North Carolina, even in a place like where I grew up in North Carolina. They're explicit because we like wearing a red hat with a slogan on it means a certain thing. Putting a Black Lives Matter sign in your yard means a certain thing. Wearing a mask in the grocery store, unfortunately, or getting a vaccine means a certain thing. It speaks to how you feel about the 2020 election, whether or not it was stolen. It speaks to how you feel about January 6th. It speaks to how you feel about Anthony Fauci, right? So th- we have these much more explicit signifiers of our political cultural leanings. And it's forcing us to do one of two things, have really tough conversations or refuse to have really tough conversations. Do we get up from the table? Do we hang up the phone? Do we respond to memes being shared on social media by our parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles or siblings, or do we just hold our tongue? There are a couple of instances in the novel where Winston has to have tough conversations with people that he's worked with for decades, with family members, and he confronts the very real idea that we see every day that just because you live in a community doesn't mean that you understand the ins and outs and the heart of that community and the hearts of the people in that community. And that some people you've worked alongside of for the past 20 years would have political and cultural beliefs that would shock you to the core of your soul if you ever had an honest conversation. with. And so that's what I want readers to think about when they're reading this book. It seems like a really good place to wrap. Wiley Couch, thank you so much for joining us on Port Over. The new novel is When Ghosts Come Home, and it's out now. Thank you so much for having me, Wiley. This has been a pleasure. Port Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.